Second Samuel 18. We begin with verses 1 through 9. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruu, and a third under Itai, the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care, but you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to stay and give support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and thousands. And the king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Itai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding a mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair got caught in the tree, and he was left hanging in midair while the mule he had been riding on kept on going. Continuing on to verses 14 and 15, we read, Joab said, I am not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor-bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Concluding now with verses 31 to 33. Then the Cushite arrived and said, My lord the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, Oh, may the enemies of the Lord, the king, and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone loves a happy ending. Um, <laughs> we haven't had many lately. Uh, I told one person, they said, what are you preaching on? And I said, we're still in the life of David. And she said, oh, no. <laughs> so this is, this is the last night, I promise. Um, for some reason, though, even though we're all drawn to happy endings, there's a sense in which 
there's something about tragedy that we're drawn to as well. Um, by tragedy, I'm, I'm talking about that form of literature, that, that kind of play or story or film where you have a hero with a tragic flaw that makes a bad choice that results in their destruction and usually the destruction of others around them. Um, the Greeks started this 3,000 years ago. Shakespeare was brilliant at it. Ten of his plays were tragedies. Today, Hamlet is played thousands of times every year all over the world 500 years later. Why? Why are Breaking Bad and The Dark Knight and uh, uh, Game of Thrones and, I mean, yeah, whatever it is, um, why are we drawn into these tragedies? They seem to have such power over us. Aristotle wrote the, the classic answer to that many years ago. He said it was because uh, of catharsis, that there was something about watching someone go through a tragedy that helped you work through your own emotions, learn something, and be thankful it wasn't you. I mean, if you, you conclude, well, I didn't, at least I didn't marry my mother. You know, <laughs> things could be worse or something like that. But why would we want to read a tragedy in our Bibles? This is something that, honestly, I've wrestled with. When I thought about going through the life of David with you, I was kind of pumped up. And as it, I remember, you know, all the great stories, you know, the early ones. And for some reason, I just hadn't read very all the way through, I guess. I didn't remember how, how badly it ends up. And, and sometimes on a story like this, which is the ultimate tragedy, it, it, it just seems sort of odd to stand before you and preach it. I mean, if, if you've seen a Shakespeare tragedy at the end, there's bodies everywhere and blood everywhere, and the curtain goes down. It's like some guy in khakis and a red sweater comes out and says, so, what do you think? You know, What can we learn about this for our lives today? I mean, you don't do that with, with tragedies. But tragedies are in our Bibles. And so I've been thinking a lot, why? I mean, the Bible is a book about hope and promise and redemption. Why do we have these stories in it? Well, I I think the difference between a Greek tragedy and a Shakespearean tragedy, at least some of them, is the biblical tragedies are stories that are embedded in a larger story. I think that's the difference. And if, you, if, if you're going to read a story like the one we're reading tonight, and there is no happy ending tonight, you've got to always read it in light of the larger story of God's healing and love and redemption in the world. And you know what? That's true when you're living a tragedy, isn't it? See, one of the things that strikes me about a story like this and about the Greek tragedies and even the Shakespearean tragedies is you get into them And the characters seem to lose all agency. They they, they seem to be victims uh, at at the whims of power and forces in their hearts, in their world, that they're powerless to do anything about. And you have this feeling that they're just being sucked down this drain of darkness. And you know it's just going to get worse as the play goes on. And there's nothing they can do to unplug. And Absalom and David kind of have that feel too. I mean, it's... It's not going to end well. So when we read a story like this, when you are living a story like this, and I know some of you are tonight, 
you've got to remember there's a bigger story. You're not a victim of forces beyond your control. So let's just read through this a little bit. Let, it, let this tragedy read us, and let's remember uh, the bigger story. If David has a tragic flaw, remember we talked about tragedies, the, the, the hero has a tragic flaw. As we've said last week, I would argue that it's passivity. That he just refuses to deal with the messes that he's made in his life. He doesn't deal with his lust and his inner demons, so he commits adultery. He doesn't deal with the sick dynamics in his family, so there is a a rape that occurs. He does nothing to heal the wound between Amnon and Absalom, so a murder occurs. Uh, He does nothing to pursue Absalom, and so Absalom lives in exile for three years, comes back into the kingdom, lives two more years. David refuses to move into the chaos that is their hatred. And so, surprise, surprise, Absalom rebels against the king. And that's where our story begins. He begins a civil war. The aging David is not done yet. He still has enough popular support to raise an army. Uh, You could read this different ways. The the young men say to the king, you know, um, really, we don't want you to get hurt out there, so you stay home. And I think what probably is happening is they've been watching the guy's track record for a while, and they don't want him in the way. And so they kind of wheel him over to the porch and say, you know, Papa, just hang out, and we'll come back. And David says, "Ah, whatever you want. So he does. He gives his commanders this impossible request. He says, deal gently with the young man Absalom. Can you imagine a more confusing battle order? You can't deal gently with the enemy you're trying to kill. And politically, if you've got a rebel in your kingdom, you can't keep the guy alive. So it, it just reveals David is at this point in his life where he's, so, he, he's made bad decision after bad decision, and his heart is so torn and conflicted now he can't even can't even lead well. He doesn't even know what to say. Well, if David's tragic flaw is passivity, what would what would Absalom's be? The text doesn't tell us a lot about his inner life, but we see he's ruthless, ambitious, um, savvy. One of the things you don't see, he's never seeking God. Absalom is the center of Absalom's story. That's his tragic flaw. He's not a real worshiper of the living God. Question. What's your fatal flaw? What's the one area of your life that if you neglect, it could destroy you? Now, one of the 
I think the powerful things about these historical books is they show the development or the decline of a character over a lifetime. And that's the way it is with sin, right? If you just let it go, over the years it can destroy you. So could you identify that? If, if there was one area of your life, one character flaw that could ultimately destroy you and those around you, what would it be? Now, when I ask you that, I want to remind you of the bigger story. Because even though in this story it looks like Absalom and David are powerless to change their fatal flaws, nobody changes in the last part of 2 Samuel. The bigger story of the gospel says Jesus Christ saves, redeems, heals us, comes into our life by the Holy Spirit and renews us, and we really can change. Do you believe people change? I think one of the the danger signs or the warning signs that you're slipping into sort of a tragic view of life, and by that I mean you just, you think that you're doomed. That it's kind of all played out. There's nothing you can do about it. Things are against you. One of the reasons that we get there is we stop believing the hope of the gospel that we change. Do you believe that you can change? Do you believe that the people that you love and disappoint you can change? That's really kind of the essence of being a Christian, that you believe that you can change. Well, nobody changes much in this story. David's armies rout the armies of Absalom. The narrator has this interesting line. He says, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. And it's as if all of nature is conspiring to thwart Absalom and help David, fragile David, sinful David, fulfill his destiny. Ultimately, the narrator says, the forest itself devours the armies of Absalom. And again, I think what you see there is this hint of a larger story. Like him or not, and I think many of us right now are not liking David a whole lot, God uses him to bring his plan of salvation into the world. (laughs) He even uses the forest to fulfill his purpose on earth. There's a bigger story. And then some of the saddest, most tragic words in Scripture, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, and he was riding on a mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak tree, And his head or his hair, depending on how he caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule went on. 
Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom. So Joab and his men kill the young prince as he dangles from the tree. They bury him in an unmarked grave. And now David has lost three sons, all in one sense as a result of his own sins. Now, this is, a, I think, in some ways a symbolic death. If you were here a few weeks ago, we noticed that the storyteller often points out the beauty of David's family. And there's a, a, there's a lesson in that because everyone who's beautiful in this story gets killed in the end. Uh, but in one particular verse tucked away in chapter 14, the storyteller says that Absalom had a great head of hair. It's kind of an odd detail. It even says that it was so great that it was five, five pounds of hair, and every year he'd cut it off. And I was asking some ladies with a lot of hair, I said, how much your hair weigh? They said, I've never been asked that. I, I don't know. Um, it just seems like a lot of hair. You know, so maybe that's a biblical kind of hyperbole or something. But the point is, I think of this Disney movie we used to watch for kids where the guy would go like this. and I forget who that was, and his hair would flow back. This is a very attractive, Herculean kind of uh, prince with awesome hair. And... That's what kills him. And you get the feeling that what he, he was really proud about what, what he looked like. He loved his hair. And that's what caught him in the tree. It's pride. In Greek tragedies, hubris is often the fatal flaw that, that kills the, uh, the hero. Uh, just this sense that I can do this on my own. And nothing's going to stop me. You know, I, I confess that I can tell I, when it's time maybe to end up a series because I start losing energy for it myself. And today I snacked way too much. Um, I went to the fridge, you know, like a lot. And that's usually a sign, you know, that maybe we're time to wind down. And one of the things that I've been uh, thinking about is where do we go next? And so we're going to have this lovely wedding next weekend. Scott's going to preach. And then we're going to look at the life of Solomon, which, uh, 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 spoiler alert, uh, starts well. <laughs> it doesn't end very well. Ugh. There's kind of a pattern here. Um, and then after that, we're going to look at the prophets. And I don't know how to do that yet. You can't really preach through a whole book of prophecy or you would empty the church. Um, <laughs> I've never preached on the prophets because if you've read the prophets, they're really hard to read. The best book on the prophets ever written in English is by a rabbi. His name's Abraham Heschel. It's just called The Prophets. He started writing it as a Jewish man in Berlin in the 30s. And uh, it's just unbelievable. And yesterday I was uh, reading his chapter on Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet that essentially said to Israel, he's one of the gentler prophets. Maybe we'll start with him, but he says, you know what your problem is, Israel? 
You don't know God anymore. You know, Amos is all about justice, and Hosea is more about the heart. He says, you know, you, you don't know him. That's why you're not being blessed. That's why you're not leading well. You don't know. And you know, quotes like the, my preaching professor said, never read a quote like this to a church, but this more for me than for you. So he says, um, Hosea's central complaint against the people is that they don't know God. The Hebrew verb yada does not always mean to know as be an acquainted with. In most Semitic languages, it signifies sexual union as well as mental and spiritual activity. In Hebrew, yada means more than the possession of abstract concepts. Knowledge compasses inner appropriation, feeling, a reception into the soul. Hosea says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, and they know not the Lord. So as I read the life of David and the tragedy of Absalom, the real tragedy is that they don't know the Lord. That, 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 here, one last quote, and then I'll, I promise I'll stop. Um, he says, The relationship between God and Israel calls not only for right action, but also for a feeling for each other. This is the essential religious requirement. The loss of an emotional identification with God is the cause of man's undoing. I mean, that's what I was dealing with at the table tonight. It's just just so easy to lose that. It's so hard to keep that feeling, that sympathy, that emotional connection alive with God. That's why I'm so thankful for the beautiful worship that we enjoyed tonight. That certainly helps us. But I think if if you're in a tragic arc tonight, if you're living out a tragedy, if, if you're kind of in that place where you're starting to feel like there's no bigger story. This is not going to end well. I'm trapped. I'm powerless. I'm a victim. There are forces pitted against me, and I have no power to control it. You're believing a lie. And the antidote is knowing the Lord. The cure is loving God. That's what saves us. That's what heals us. David soon hears of his son's death in battle. He's overwhelmed with grief and despair. The king was deeply moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. And his grief is so all-consuming that his general pulls him aside and essentially says, Get a grip, king, or we're all going to leave you. 
and David slumps down at the front of the gate. That's the end of this part of the story. You know what the name in Hebrew, I looked it up today, for Absalom means? My father is peace. My father is peace. So when David is saying, my Hebrew is no good, Ben Avasolom, Ben Avshalom, Ben Avshalom, son of Absalom, son of the father who is peace. And what he's doing in some ways is what I see often at funerals. He's saying the things that he should have said when his son was alive. And his grief is the grief of a man who's buried three children, but his grief is the man who is living in the shadow of his regret. He's looking back at a wasted life. Let's end with the bigger story. You can't avoid death. You can't avoid grief. You can't avoid tragedy. What we can avoid is regret. Because we have the freedom, we have the power to make choices now where we confess our sins and return to the knowledge of God. And so while we will all weep at the grave, we don't have to weep the weep of regret. Because right now, tonight, you can turn back to God. You can turn from whatever it is that you'd regret if you died today. You can change. And you can know God. There are tragedies in our lives. But our life does not need to be a tragedy. 